Here's a message from today's episode's sponsor. Insulet, makers of Omnipod, are proud to partner with the Pharmacy Podcast Network to support the 2023 APHA Annual Meeting and Exhibition. The Omnipod 5 Automated Insulin Delivery AIDS System is indicated for people with type 1 diabetes ages 2 years and older. Omnipod 5 is the first and only tubeless aid system in the United States that is exclusively available in the pharmacy. The Omnipod 5 combines a tubeless, waterproof, wearable pod that integrates with Dexcom G6 CGM to automatically adjust insulin based on glucose trends every five minutes. Visit the Omnipod team at booth 216 to learn more about this innovative technology. Disclaimers, the pod has an IP28 rating for up to 25 feet for 60 minutes. The Omnipod 5 controller is not waterproof. The Dexcom G6 is sold separately and requires a separate prescription. Visit omnipod.com safety for additional important safety information. listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. In continuing a series that really, it means a lot to me. I take this personally, my background in um, understanding opioid use uh, disorder treatment starts and taking patients from the emergency room and getting them involved in outpatient therapy, being a director of strategy with New Season, you can find them at uh, newseason.com. It was an eye opener. And then when I came to to pharmacy and bringing in this publication to pharmacists, when I found the article, which was through uh, brown.edu, and it was titled, Pharmacists Can Start Patients on Road to Recovery, from opioid use disorder, the study shows, and everybody's heard of this. We also know that the Wall Street Journal and a couple other um, publications have picked up portions of this story. As if the public now gets to really get involved in understanding what pharmacists are doing with opioid use disorder and the the um, pandemic that was happening, um, that. Um, that was overshadowed, or the epidemic that was happening, that was overshadowed by the pandemic and on COVID-19, which kind of shut it down because we were on a good trajectory of getting a little bit more public support around changes in policy and changes in how pharmacists are involved. That's what this series is about. And I am so excited that we're getting to continue some great um, guests. I want to introduce Dr. Jeffrey Bratberg, um, clinical professor at University of Rhode Island, which makes me think of my trip up. The next time I come up to see UConn School of Pharmacy, um, Jeff, we are going to get together, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. I just got back from visiting the great school of pharmacy up at UConn. My uh, godson is at UConn right now getting a marketing business degree. And um, he is a D1 player on your amazing football team. Go Wolverines up there. And um, it it's good to know that there are people out there we can lean on to kind of bring us up to date on what the capabilities are of our pharmacist, our clinical pharmacist, our community pharmacist, 
as we were talking before, a specialty pharmacist who understands specific disease states. Give us kind of your thought around this article or around and around where do pharmacists fit in the realm of opioid use disorder treatment? Well, I appreciate that. And uh, I'll do my best to summarize here. I, I think it really starts from the 30,000 foot view that community pharmacists and really any pharmacists are public health. And uh, so if you're going to deal with public health, we have been lauded for our ability to take on COVID testing and COVID vaccination and pediatric vaccination and um, travel vaccination and travel clinics, all these kinds of things that pharmacists have been doing and 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 gave 50% or more of all the COVID vaccines. Um, but prior to that, you know, you mentioned sort of the, the pandemic within the epidemic or however you want to say it, and that, um, you know, over 107,000 people have died and the, uh, from opioid related overdose. And what I've been championing for about 10 years now, almost exactly 10 years has been expanded access to naloxone, um, which is a fantastic and life-saving drug. We're soon going to see it go over the counter, which may or may not increase its access. And so what I've done is work with a team of researchers or a team of researchers working with me to say, okay, well, how, if pharmacists, you know, what do they think about naloxone? How do we expand it? How do we implement it? But once people are saved from an overdose, which naloxone does, now we need to get them life-saving treatment so that they don't have another overdose. And as all exactly. my colleagues in recovery and treatment have said, you need that pharmacy, you need that medication first before you can rebuild your life, you know, that path to recovery. And so we started applying for and getting grants to say, okay, well, what if instead of pharmacists just referring people to therapy, if they were dispensing naloxone or prescribing naloxone, what if we um, compared usual treatment to treatment in the pharmacy? Well, then the pandemic happened. So then we modified our study based on regulatory changes related to COVID and said, well, what if pharmacists start therapy? And that's where this revolutionary, but as you say, seemingly obvious thing to say, if pharmacists, you know, we always say pharmacists that are most accessible, I like to think that pharmacists are the most visible, right? You don't drive down the street and go, oh, that's the doctor's office. I'm going to stop in and ask them for something. <laughs> you don't do that. And if you're a person who is a marginalized person, a person who's in a vulnerable situation, and most likely a person who's been uh, shut down by the medical community, unfortunately, for having a substance use disorder, opioid use disorder, maybe walking into a pharmacy where maybe you get your other medications, that should be the place that when you're ready, you can walk in and get started on life-saving therapy. Jeff, imagine a pharmacist in your nearest health system Let's give a call out to that hospital system. What's the nearest one? Uh, the, the largest one in Rhode Island is the Lifespan Health System. So the Lifespan Health System has these pharmacists. They're doing what they do. And there's a um, a birthing center. And sure enough, uh, the, the mother is going through um, either withdrawal or maybe under the influence. There's an article that came out on February 8th of 2023 from uh, Stat News and Stat, I mean, that's a um, a, a great uh, build out of, of really specific information and one being healthcare trends, which is, and the title says, pregnant people with substance use disorders need treatment, not criminalization. And if you read through this article, you find out 
that there's missing classifications of what a patient needs based on um, so many different things. You could even bring up um, blood. You could take blood from somebody. You could find out more information. But the pharmacist could be inserted into that treatment of that mother that you're about to take into your nursery and maybe neonatal or whatever else is there that you're preparing this baby for. A pharmacist needs to be involved at that stage. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, that builds on recent data that was just out showing that buprenorphine uh, or buprenorphine naloxone, the combination, um, but we'll just call it buprenorphine products that uh, our patients took in our study, um, is the best drug to prevent uh, withdrawal and to treat safely treat uh, pregnant people and is uh, you know lauded by those folks to, again, maintain a normal life. And so I think it's really important that we, again, just like naloxone, we really need everybody who is willing and able to start buprenorphine. Pharmacists should be involved. Uh, they should be involved in the stabilization, the maintenance, but also be part of a team of peer recovery specialists, social workers, physicians, nurses. Um, I really, you know, we did this as a, as a team approach, and I think that we can expand the team so that not only are we making sure the person doesn't die because they're on life-saving medication for opioid yep. use disorder, but they're also getting all the other services they need with prenatal and, um, you know, perinatal care being one of those for, for people who can be pregnant. Absolutely. And paying attention to that becoming part of the protocol that they're pulling that pharmacist in immediately because you know that that is, do you, do you know of a health system that has built something like that, that you've heard in, in the, in the, um, the, the hallways of pharmacy. Um, I know that there are, you know, Boston is sort of a headquarters for innovations in in addiction treatment and and reaching out to people. Um, I know that they have pharmacists on their addiction teams. And again, this is sort of honestly, unfortunately, a new concept that G people who uh, have untreated addiction often get admitted to the hospital and they more often than not don't get their addiction treated. Um, and so then they leave and don't get their original problem treated. So on a even more urgent basis, community pharmacies are there to, again, if our model can be adapted to each state and each policy and policy changes that pharmacists can advocate for, we can get people started so that they don't go to the hospital. But if people go to the ED, they, the emergency department, they can get started there from pharmacists. So there's a pharmacist, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Natalia, she's presented at a conference on how they started people on methadone and buprenorphine in the ED and follow them there. But then there's also mm -hmm. these addiction medicine services that are interprofessional teams that include pharmacists in hospitals to not only screen people who may go into withdrawal, like you explained in the hospital, and start them on medications right there, which we yep. would do for anybody. If they were diagnosed with diabetes, would we say, sorry, go, <clears throat> go find your street insulin is not something we do. But yet uh, addiction is probably more deadly and, and often occurs too often. Jeff, so during pregnancy, if a um, if a mother is on um, medication-assisted treatment, there is a specific substance that you've chosen for that specific. I can't remember. Yeah, if it's it's the drug's called buprenorphine. Yeah, but okay. uh, you know, methadone is effective. Uh, buprenorphine is effective, and again, these reduce morbidity and mortality dramatically um, in all people and are safe to use uh, for for uh, pregnant people. So 
the concept of coming together through SAMSHA, for example, um, that that is the overseer of of much of our education and policy within addiction medicine and treatment. That is the organization that the APHA can go to and form a partnership where we really funnel in pharmacists who are not only specialists in specific care, but but also have that addiction understanding and it doesn't stop at opioids. It could it could really you could plug a pharmacist in any uh, addiction category and really accelerate these addiction programs that I was personally involved with for three years, um, 82 medication-assisted treatment centers throughout the country. I saw pharmacists being utilized incorrectly just as they would dispense the meds, and that was it. That's it. And then they would sit in there with their with their magazine, or and I'm just like, what is going on? So when I started working with some pharmacists to really design some things, what do you know? We found comorbidity set in with many of these patients that were primarily there for just OUD. They don't care about anything else. Diabetics, um, you know, mental disorders, um, hypertension, other things that were happening that when the pharmacist got involved, we were able to do more for that patient holistically and drill down into medications that could could have side effects or something like that in toward together where the pharmacist was inserted. Yeah. I think that, you know, we just heard the, the state of the union and uh, substance use disorders and mental health disorders were again, brought up in terms of, you know, ma- massive and coordinated data-driven action needs to occur. And, and billions of dollars are being invested both from governments and from opioid settlement funds and pharmacists need to be part of that. Um, we don't have a behavioral uh, workforce is what I hear, but I look at pharmacists and what we teach them and what in accredited settings, both, you know, in school and, and postgraduate settings and saying, you know, there's a whole uh, psychiatric specialty pharmacy workforce, and there's the whole generalist workforce that could be utilized to treat, you know, 50% of, of people with substance use disorders have mental health disorders people with mental health disorders of substance use. We have to co-treat these in all settings. We need to do it in an interprofessional way. So we need it both in interprofessional, uh, particularly behavioral health settings in, in teaching. And also we need to do it in practice. And of course we need to all get paid for it in some sustainable way. A shout out to the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy, Joni Carroll, Dr. Joni Carroll, um, came to me through the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association, and they're so interactive, which makes it really good for our state. I'm a Pitts- I'm a Pittsburgh fan anyway, just a full disclosure. And um, and so that unified also Duquesne University, and those three organizations came together and built an opioid use uh, disorder treatment stigma series that was about the stigma of treatment. And and bringing that to the minds of our pharmacists who are these community pharmacy champions that might not have got that information in any other way. And we got it. Not only did we get a grant to sponsor that content, but we built um, five uh, credits of of continuing education, not five, five episodes. I think that's two point five credits if I do the math. But it was so it was an honor that we got to be this facilitator to help pharmacists help pharmacists understand this 
and then even get CE through through it. And you've been a champion at doing that with grant funding from the ID uh, NIDA, the CDC, um, and a bunch of other alphabet <laughs> soups that are just so impressive. But share with me being involved and really being able to help educate the 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 healthcare providers, the the physicians, the nurse practitioners. There's that has to be fulfilling and exciting. Yeah, I I think one of my most proud uh, things that I've done is to been part of this organization called Amersa, which is the uh, Amersa.org, and I'm on the board of directors and have been for for many years. And you know we're we're uh, growing. Uh, we're a small organization, but we're growing. But we have physicians, nurses, and I was one of the first pharmacists to be part of it. And now we've grown to um, to a significant number of pharmacists doing this kind of work who want to or already work with other professions. Um, it's the Association for Multidisciplinary Education and Research in Substance Use and Addiction. But that's why we say Immersa. But um, you know we have a conference every year where there's pharmacists presenting along physicians, along nurses with social workers and people with lived experience. And it's one of the greatest things to see everybody there that we we have to stop being in opposition. And you talk about educating others uh, through these these you know webinars and things which I've done um, as well on harm reduction and and other other things. I think the important thing is that uh, you know physicians are not getting this knowledge, and so pharmacists are natural teachers. We are the ones educating patients and educating our colleagues um, of all professions. We need to have expanded access to prescribe addiction medications because physicians have known about this for 30 years. They've gotten the education and they aren't they aren't expanding the care. Uh, we hope with the data waiver being gone that we'd see expanded care. Uh, but we know that uh, we could expand care to our other healthcare colleagues like physician assistants and nurse practitioners, when they got the authority to prescribe buprenorphine, we saw greater expansion of care, especially in underserved areas and rural areas, which is where pharmacists are. And so that's why um, the education is the foundation for that, but we also need policy change so that we can act on that education as well. So, you know, I'm a strange bird, Jeff. (laughs) I'm kind of the public relations you know, strategist for the entire pharmacy industry. And um, we just got rid of the X waiver. Biden administration gets rid of it, right? And there were eight hours of training, I guess, or something like that, which I think was ludicrous. I think there should have been more of a, a CE base. I don't think you should have had to maybe eight hours to get the waiver, but you should have continued being educated by people that knew what's going on and so many different avenues that we could go down and continuing education needs in just my opinion. But um, I see there being the time that pharmacists approach SAMHSA, for example, uh, through maybe the APHA or whatever body that we pick. I think APHA is perfect. And we go to them and say, here, we got pharmacists that are specialists. Um, There's a bunch of us that are out there. When I say us, I don't mean me, I mean you. Um, I'm speaking on your behalf. And um, you start aligning other strategists that are out there, like, for example, Cardinal Health and Generation Rx, and the fact that you were their 2016 NASPA National Cardinal Generation Rx Award winner. Now, listen, this is how things get done in business, let alone healthcare. I mean, healthcare is so complex. 
but we can build those inroads to each other and into these other bigger entities so that they realize why in the world aren't we taking advantage of our pharmacists to lead this you know I- input and i'm not saying take anything over farm we don't want it. pharmacists do not they're busy enough they don't want to take anything over like that's not it it's let you do what you were designed to do and get out of our way get out of your way and kind of let you build policy technology platforms you know theragy that's out there theragy no. specialized specialty pharmacy it's a it's a specialty pharmacy management program that is all about treatments and cases and and big data and algorithm i mean just it's a beautiful system that helps you to specialize in a very specific disease state you we could be building this that pharmacists become i don't know if you go to the board of specialties um jeff and say addiction now addiction medicine now becomes a specialty because if if we did do that it really sets pharmacists up to being the ones that we go to just as any specialist involved in specialty cancers or uh, pregnancy issues or fertility or whatever it is. But tell me that that isn't a model that you could see really making sense for public health. Well, I, I see, I think I see education as, um, you know, I, I think, addiction, both as an educational case and as a part of practice, is a part of everything. It's a part of the fabric of our society, both opioids, alcohol, nicotine, cannabis, whatever. Psychoactive substances are out there. They're always going to be out there and everyone's going to use them. So our job, whether it's a medication that someone determined is legal or someone determined it's not legal, our job is to be aware of that earn and keep the community and patients trust and make sure that people are using these substances in the least risky way as possible while also connecting to them to services. Every time I give a talk, I always start with this question to say, well, why are people using drugs? Right. Isn't that what we, isn't that the right that we earned when, you know, in the fifties, we couldn't even ask people why they were using their drugs. And we said, that doesn't make any sense as a profession. And we said, oh, Maybe in every setting we work in, we find out why you're using it so we can say, stop using it, change it. You know, these are the things I'm teaching my P1s to say, question things, right? That's our job. And we can, and again, as long as you have the patient's trust and we don't have that stigma to say, gosh, it's really hard to hear somebody say, well, I use heroin three times a day. Or I use this, you know, I, I really like fentanyl and I'm using it six times a day. And you go, well, okay, how can we help you with that? Should be our next answer. And if addiction medicine is part of that and the patient's ready, we need to be ready to deliver it to them because too often people say, if you call an addiction specialist or a family medicine or whoever it is, a prescriber, they'll say, yeah, I I have an opening in three weeks and they'll be dead. And so this is literally life or death, both to reduce the stigma, to rapidly increase that education, to work together to say there are you know, eight or nine out of every 10 people who want treatment are unable to get it. And our study shows that people want to do it in the pharmacy. And it differentiates as well. Um, Before I go into this next question I have for you, what does a lawyer do? Like if you hire a lawyer or you have a lawyer on, on staff, that lawyer is 
there as an advisor to you and in essence to keep you from overspending on taxes or strategy or getting thrown in jail or getting penalized with something, right? You understand that every prescription that comes from the physician, aka the client, and the pharmacist, aka the lawyer to keep your ass out of jail, like pharmacists, which sometimes will lock heads with a physician, the physician needs to understand, and this is just my call out because it makes strategic, I mean, it makes sense to me. Pharmacists are keeping you from killing people. They're keeping you from going to jail. They're keeping you from, they're, they're protecting the, the patient first. And by protecting the patient, it's, it's in many sometimes, and everybody makes mistakes, including pharmacists. But it, you're the last line of defense for the for the decision that was made by um, a physician, a very busy, stressed out, um, you know, way too many patients probably per day, you know, physician that we're a team. We're not we're not here to call you out and say we do things better than you do. We're just this. We're you're specialist in something very specific, and we're talking about addiction medicine, and we're talking about a treatment, and we're talking about titration from methadone when someone wants to go to Vivitrol, and now you've got a five to what nine day period where you got to get them clean before you get them on Vivitrol. What is that time period that I'm thinking of? Uh, it would depend. <laughs> That's my standard. It depends, but yeah, um, yeah, it transitioning. I mean, there's. Those are complex things. Like I said, I, I'm just going to go back to say that pharmacists are public health. We are in a public health. We we have accepted a hundred thousand deaths every year from addiction. It's only second only to COVID, and we seem to invest a lot of money to try to defeat COVID in various ways. And and we're not seeing those level of deaths. We only accept you know 430 deaths a day as of today uh, of COVID deaths. But so many more people are dying of completely prevent completely preventable deaths from opioid addiction. You know there it isn't that people don't want therapy; they just can't access it. So what we're trying to study is how do we increase that access? How do we you know we can motivate and train physicians, but you know, uh, studies show that only one third to one half of doctors that had the waiver, so they went ahead and got all that eight hours of training, they didn't have one patient that they were following. So getting rid of the waiver is a great thing, removing all barriers, patient limits, those things are great. But uh, a stressed out doctor who's got 200 patients can't take another one. So they need to work with pharmacists. Pharmacists need either autonomous prescribing ability or collaborations or both in a sustainable payment fashion to say, we're there to start people, to maintain them, uh, to refer them to recovery and to other supports for what are likely a whole host of social determinants of health needs. And so um, that stressed out physician you described isn't vaccinating the person, who is? We are. So if we can vaccinate somebody, we can also administer supplicate, a long-acting buprenorphine product, or we can administer Vivitrol, a long-acting naltrexone product for either opioid or alcohol, you know, better suited for alcohol use disorder. We need to offer every medication for opioid use disorder, including methadone. You go to Canada, guess where you get your methadone? You're getting it at a pharmacy. My colleague owns a pharmacy in Ontario. It's just normal. My Canadian colleagues go to this conference and they say, you can't get methadone in pharmacies. You've got to go to an entirely separate medical system. Yeah. What is that? So it's not even, hey, we're going to do this novel methadone thing. We're like, well, you know, 
Australia, Scotland, Switzerland, Norway, <laughs> Canada all all do it and successfully. If we could add methadone, we can already do naltrexone, and maybe we can do buprenorphine in an induction fashion. Um, then, <laughs> then we can start talking about the specialists to do the transitions and things. But we just don't nearly have enough people who are on life-saving treatment. So my, my goal is to start with that and and educate people and destigmatize them. And that's this. The here here we go with. Oh, we got three hundred and five thousand pharmacists in the country. It's just too many pharmacists. And I'm like, um, actually, give me six hundred thousand pharmacists, and I will keep you all busy, and I'll keep you all funded because of of being able to partner with payers and PBMs and multiple different facets of payment to show that if you just design these systems for us, we literally make healthcare more efficient because we're getting more out of the treatment. By the way, $4.325 billion Sacklers with Purdue were fined, right? Where's that money going? Give me some to build programs nationally from federal funding to create programs that partner with health systems, that partner with specialists, that partner with the MAT centers, because there's always these divides. Until I came, until I came to new season, nobody was losing a pharmacist like that. Nobody was thinking, how could we really be? Let, we're paying for them. Why aren't we? And that's what I was. I, that's I came at it as a capitalist to tell you the truth, Jeff. I was like, why in the world aren't we using our pharmacists to like not only treat the way they should be, but we could make more money with these pharmacists because you could charge for an MTM or an incident two billing between the physician and the pharmacist. Like that's. Whatever. I should be a strategist and go work for these companies and maybe I'll make more money than podcasting. <laughs> who who knows? That's that's when you know <laughs> you've made it when there's there's more money in pharmacist addiction care than podcasting. There we go. I've laid down the gauntlet. <laughs> oh. So I'm excited that we're talking about it and that there there is a push for this. I think that organizations like um the pain care event or the pain event or Mark Garofoli, Dr. Garofoli always goes uh, to that. And now I'm forgetting what that actually is called, but pain, pain week, pain week. Um, more pharmacists are, are showing up there and getting involved in that. Uh, pharmacists that are talking about innovative care with uh, digital therapeutics being involved and how pair therapeutics has something that ties into addiction. This is such opportunities for us to, I feel like, what are you guys, the salt of healthcare, where it's like, now we're like getting the most out of the, out of everything that if you just tapped in and, and understood that it makes more sense for the dollars being spent, that it's going to be that much more effective if, if we get you involved in treatment. Absolutely. I, it's, you know, and, and, and again, as I work in our state to try to expand scope of practice to other public health interventions that other states have done, like uh, access to hormonal contraception and smoking cessation and things like that. Um, and, and we did our addiction research and soon to publish our longer acting uh, goals, which uh, are right now looking looking good in a very preliminary way, but looking good in preliminary way is a good thing. Um you know, we want and looking for more grant funding to say, okay, well, so it seems like patients want to stay in pharmacies for 30 days. Do they want to stay for three months? Do they want to stay for six months? What does it look like when an opioid treatment program 
is the pharmacy that's also doing primary care, that's also doing public health, that's also dispensing prep and selling syringes and covering the whole spectrum of all medications, right? Uh, for some people, illicit medication, illicit drugs are not illicit drugs, they're medications. They're managing a condition and managing that whole of 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 these folks who are who are humans and deserve our care, um, but are not often thought of by the healthcare community as deserving of care, and thus they themselves don't think of themselves as care. And so I'm getting a little spiritual here, but it's the idea like when people take buprenorphine, their lives really do change. And our pharmacists saw that, and the patients saw that, and their partners saw it. And and I can't become more of an evangelist that more medication access in our hospitals, in our clinics, in our communities, on mobile units, um, in pharmacy parking lots. I don't care where you do this. We got to start people on medication with as few barriers as possible. Jeff, when I was in it um, and proud of working for New Season and partnering with um, states that had grant money that didn't understand how it could be spent. And when we tore these politicians through one of our centers and they got to see finally the connection, not only back to the, the center itself and the, the treatment, medication-assisted treatment, but how pharmacists could really take it to a whole nother level. And here's another point, especially when you're talking about grant dollars, it's the comorbid situations that the the patient that all you're focusing on is the OUD has this whole other condition that if you just had a pharmacist, just settle down for a second. This is a patient. This isn't an addict. Stop saying that. This is a patient. They need someone to review their hypertension medicine, or they need someone to jump on the HIV, or they need someone to understand the interaction between Suboxone and your pregnancy medication or your fertility medication, whatever that is, it's like a no duh. Like if a pharmacist steps in now that now that is a patient, that's not, that's not, we're not just focused on OUD. It's the whole patient, which is the whole dollar. Well, and, I, and, I, and I would argue the vice versa, that the person with hypertension, who's not told anybody about their alcohol use disorder, if they get asked that question and you're a trusted member of their healthcare team, you could get them care that day, right? With appropriate policy change and and, and reimbursement structures. Um, and that and that has happened. Um, you know, if you're managing their HIV, people with HIV, large, larger proportion of those folks uh acquired HIV through uh through syringe sharing because of lack of access to syringes and other harm reduction. Um, that's a group that we basically eliminated in Rhode Island HIV transmission via syringes because of we decriminalized them and we made them as accessible as possible. Um, those are ways that pharmacists can advocate for this. But that person with HIV with an HIV specialist also needs addiction treatment. That mental health specialist pharmacist also needs that addiction uh, specialty knowledge or at least general knowledge so that they can and the the ability to start people on medications. I see great advantages to the VA system where we where uh, pharmacists are integral and and have uh, you know there are policies for pharmacies pharmacists to take care of folks across that spectrum of chronic disease states. Health and human services in each of the states um, may or may not rely on pharmacists to really understand 
uh, strategies around harm reduction um, and, and of course, how to stop and start treatment for whatever reason, especially when we were mentioning transferring from one medication to the next. What kind of, through your research with harm reduction, for example, or overdose prevention and opioid safety, which is another one that you've you've touched on, kind of expand how do we take pharmacists to start specializing in that? And, and that is study and, and diving down into the actual disease state and really starting to dissect that, which sets stan- a new standards in, in treatment. Yeah, definitely. There's a, there's a lack of harm reduction. I mean, I, I always try to get people to think of like, this is not a foreign concept. When you counsel people on new medications or existing medications, it's always the efficacy and safety of it. You're already, we are risk reductionists, right? We want, we don't want people to stop taking their meds because they had some known side effect that would go away if they kept taking it, for example. Or we don't want people to not report <laughs> that they had trouble breathing on this medication and didn't see care. So we're already risk communication experts, right? We're already uh, experts in motivational interviewing. So it just makes sense, sort of what I mentioned earlier, that if people are taking medications that are not prescribed, that person, that patient deserves risk reduction education there. And so once I frame that to different audiences, they all seem to get that to say like, oh, of course, I want to drive my car as safely. I put a seatbelt on. I I want to ride my bike as safely. So I put on a helmet. Harm reduction is all around us. Uh, risk reduction is all around us. And so uh, do we need more education in it? Yep. Do we need to do it with other professionals? So we're sending the same message from across the healthcare spectrum. Absolutely. Is it easier said than done? Absolutely. But it really starts with understanding that people who use drugs are all of us and that all of us deserve healthcare. And once you start that foundation, you go, oh, okay, you may not want to take this medication right now, but maybe we can figure out ways for you to use uh, those substances in the safest way. Um, So I think that's the thing is that it's not a specialty. It is just what we do. It's part of everything we do. I like that. It's already what it's already what pharmacists are trained to do. For goodness sakes, that's great. Um, what's next for you? Are you are you going to be doing additional research specifically, or are you going to be working with other um, state or national associations in the great state of Rhode Island? Well, you know, when you put when you uh, what I've learned that uh, I, I wish more people would learn that when you publish something in the New England Journal of Medicine and you have Farm DF your name, a lot of people come calling <laughs> when you're almost literally because I tell people that my cell phone's on the web, it's on the URI website. Give me, give me a text. It's fine, and nobody does, so I feel fine saying that. <laughs> um, maybe not. On the, maybe this is the wrong venue. I'll find that out. But um, no, it's been really, really encouraging that uh, you know to be sort of purposely vague, but there's lots of national organizations that are interested in advancing this. There are federal and state uh, pharmacy folks and policy folks that are interested in this and and instantly see the advantages to this. Um, Again, when 107,000 people die every year, you can get policy people to say, how do we stop this while medication's a way to do that while more access is necessary, okay. Um, so I think I'm going to keep pursuing that uh, policy change or policy analysis, replicating the study in a way that it's longer than the original three months um, 
in the comparator arms of the randomized control trial. Uh, I would also look to, again, I, I, my dream is that there's uh, all three medications that we have right now, or all medications for substance use disorder, opioid use disorder, are available. So you could go find out that a pharmacy offers this care, no barrier access, and you can start buprenorphine, you can start methadone, or you could start naltrexone from that place, your choice, patient-directed care, and access accessible to all, all three medications right now. So that's what I'm trying to figure out how to do. You got your hands full, but I love it. Um, Want to continue to support you. Um, so proud of your work as a pharmacist and really trying to get other um, pharmacists to understand that there are sometimes bigger paths uh, and paths and opportunities for you as a pharmacist than what you might think. And we're kind of going through this industry change of the role of the pharmacist and it's expanding. So that's been uh, amazing to see in our 14 years of podcasting how much it has changed and how it's um, it's accelerating. And it's exciting to kind of be a part of pushing that messaging out. So you are welcome back um, on, on our network and on our shows. I'd like to get you and Dr. Um, Mark uh, Garofoli together for a pain pod. You got to join up the pain pod. I don't know if you've, have you been a, a, a guest on there yet? I, I have not been a guest on, on them yet. Uh, I did, I have, I have presented at, at pain conferences as, as well. Uh, you know, definitely a lot of overlap there with very, very talented pharmacists. I'm not one of those doing the care of people in chronic pain and uh, co-managing addiction is something that is is uh, of great interest to me as well. I also wanted to say something. Um, I want to dedicate this episode to Dr. Jeffrey Feuden and uh, just a shout out to how special he was to our network. Um, you know, he, uh, I think he was a guest four or five times and every time he would bring like an entourage of listeners with him because we would always preface it but i i want to shout him out and just say how much we miss him absolutely the value a very valued member of uh the profession in the world all right well we are very thankful to you um jeff for sharing uh today and, and getting into this um, once again, we'd like to stage a time that you get to come back and kind of talk with us more about some of your uh, additional findings, especially if you're going to be at a, a future conference that we can um, get more um, eyes and ears around uh, around you. Um, you're a champion and we much appreciate you. I appreciate it very much. I'd be, I'd be happy to be back. Uh, of course, I have my own podcast. I don't know if I'm allowed to, to co-mention yes. co it, but uh, we Great. did talk about the study in our most recent podcast called The Regimen uh, that I that my students produce. Uh, and so it's been a lot of fun. We celebrate our, our year of episodes, uh, weekly episodes. And uh, at the APHA conference, I'll be speaking with my colleagues um, on uh, decriminalization of drugs. So that will be exciting. We'll be there. We are the media partner for APHA 2023. We'll be running their podcast, um, Locked on Pharmacy, and uh, it'll be so exciting to be there. So please uh, send us a link of your podcast. We're going to share it on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and get it kind of tied into the future of pharmacy, literally, and and kind of getting these young, you know, aspired to be 
bigger things pharmacist which will beat us all in the future because of nanotechnology um and chat that, gpt uh, so they can get they, yes. they can focus on advocacy they can have chat gpt write perfect testimony to allow them to prescribe addiction meds i have no problem with that that is okay you heard it first <laughs> here on the pharmacy podcast <laughs> network and dr uh, bradberg uh said it so um you've coined we'll coin it here okay i appreciate you appreciate it it's been a been a pleasure thanks so much